Welcome to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com, where we answer the questions you ask about Metro Phoenix. I'm your host, Kayla White. Today's story takes us back to the Phoenix of the 1930s, a time when the young state of Arizona was not yet known to many in the country, but a gruesome murder changed that. Heads up, today's episode has graphic details of a violent crime, so listener discretion is advised. At the end of the day, we still have two young women who are dead. Multiple people have submitted questions asking us about Winnie Ruth Judd. Her story put Phoenix on the map in a way not everyone had envisioned. And that it was coming out of Phoenix was a great embarrassment to Phoenix. Producer Maritza Dominguez found herself in a popular downtown bar where this piece of history still lives on. Valley Bar is one of the most popular bars in downtown Phoenix, in part because of its style as a speakeasy. You walk down a dark alley and there it is, a red neon sign leading you underground to Valley Bar. As you make your way in looking for a drink or just a good time, you'll see right above the bar hangs a white cloth with light shining on it. You can see shadows of figures like a trunk, a saw, and an arm rotating along the length of the bar. This art project tells the story of the infamous trunk murderess, Winnie Ruth Judd. Now to understand that story, we have to go back to the 1930s. Only 19 years after Arizona became a state, Phoenix was relatively unknown. It was a city of just under 50,000 residents, not a major city like it is now. Um, really, kind of, that 10th, 12th street would have been the farthest reaches of the city it would have been a very small space compared to what it is now. That's local historian Marshall Shore. It was a place where people moved to the desert for their health. This is why Indiana native Winnie Ruth Judd found herself in Phoenix, Arizona. She and her husband, Dr. William C. Judd, moved around for his job. When he couldn't find one here, he left to Los Angeles in 1931, but Winnie stayed behind because she had a job at the Lois Gruno Memorial Clinic. She was the receptionist in the, in the, uh, in the office. When, they, when you walked in, the first person you saw was Winnie Ruth Judd. This is Jana Boomersbach, a former Arizona Republic reporter and the author of a book titled The Trunk Murderess, Winnie Ruth Judd. Here's how Jana described Winnie's personality as a young woman. She had a very nice personality. She was, um, she was talkative, she was funny, um, she made friends easily. Um, she was, um, I wouldn't say she was vivacious, but she could hold her own in conversations. While at her job, she befriended two women, Agnes and Leroy, and later Hedwig Sammy Samuelson. The women became close friends, including living together for some time. All three women were close friends with a man named Jack Holleran, a prominent member in Phoenix society, and someone who liked to party. Their house was known as a, a good time house. So Jack would have out-of-town clients, would bring them to the house, and they would all have a fun time. In fact, they got a radio so they could have dance parties, and even though it was during Prohibition, the booze did flow at their house. It is considered common knowledge that Jack and Winnie were having a full-blown affair at this time. The relationship between the four soon turned sour. Now, this is where the story gets a little tricky. There are many different versions of what happened, but here are the facts. On October 16, 1931, all three women, Anne, Sammy, and Winnie, were shot. Anne and Sammy died, but Winnie survived 
Sammy's body was cut up to fit into trunks and Anne stuffed into another. How it happened? We'll get to that later. But it was Winnie who traveled to Los Angeles with the trunks of Anne and Sammy's corpses. She gets to LA. One of the, the big trunk is dripping blood. They think it's contraband deer. Winnie with Judd disappears from the station um, and doesn't come back to claim the, 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 the trunk. And eventually the stink that's stinking and flies are running around the trunk and eventually they open the trunk and discover that inside there are parts of the body. Because the trunks were in her name, LA police began searching for her all over town. An LA Times newspaper article from October 21st, 1931 refers to it as, quote, the greatest police hunt. Winnie turned herself in a few days later. Photos of her surrender show her wearing a dress, a large fur coat, and her hair styled in finger waves. Once the story got out, it was reported all over the country. Because it was selling headline papers across the country. And in a lot of ways, it was really the first time that people had heard of Phoenix. During my research, I saw headlines from Maryland, Montana, Florida, you name it. And it became a sensation here in the state as well. People gave her all types of nicknames. The most popular were, quote, the trunk murderess or the tiger woman. She got transported back to Phoenix, and that was also a spectacle. When she got back to Phoenix, there was a huge crowd waiting for her outside the courthouse, which is the antique courthouse downtown. There were lots of people waiting for her um, to, to see her and to, to get a look at the famous of Winnie Ruth Judd. Now, back in Arizona, her trial began in January of 1932. The state had their theory of what happened that night. I said, you uh, went out there with this gun to kill these women because this one woman had rejected your love. Isn't that right? And I said, you found them sound asleep and you had a key to the door. So you went quietly in there to where they were asleep and you... While they were still asleep, when you shot him right through in the bed there. This is Phoenix Detective Charles Arnold, who investigated the crime firsthand in 1931. He said that in a later interview with Phoenix TV station KTAR, the frenzy continued into the trial. The, the galleries were filled every day when it came time for the trial, with people just standing in, in line for hours to get in for the few seats they had in the courtroom. The trial was a, an amazing trial. It was like this spectacular trial of the century kind of story where they put people on again and again to say how Winnie Ruth Judd had alone done all of this stuff. Um, they, they, brought, they brought in police officers who, who did their reports. Winnie Ruth Judd was only tried for Anne's murder, not Sammy's. No one was ever tried for Sammy's murder, even though she was the one found dismembered. And attorneys later would say the reason she wasn't tried for that crime was because if they cut, if they did that, they'd have to explain how she could have cut up this body. And they couldn't explain that. Winnie was found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging. She was taken to Arizona State Prison in Florence, located in eastern Arizona. Winnie's prosecutors in the meantime did what they could to try and get her an insanity hearing, hoping it might keep her from being executed. On April 6, 1933, Winnie wrote a 19-page confession letter describing the gruesome details of that fateful night. The letter begins with her recalling her relationship with Jack and the women, Anne and Sammy. 
Marshall here summarizes how Anne and Winnie started to pull apart. Part of the reason for the murder, or the reason for the murder, depending on which variation you want to believe, is the fact that Anne was playing Jack right in front of Winnie Ruth Judd, was really playing up to him and then really telling her that she was only using him for his money and didn't care anything about it. Winnie in the letter wrote, quote, It was not what Jack did, but the continual taunts made by Anne which drove me beside myself. I could not stand taunts. I just went crazy. She goes on to say that the taunts kept her awake at night. She started self-medicating to help her sleep. Um, but you also have a moment where Winnie Judd is taking lots of a barbiturate, luminol. So I think you also have drugs playing into it as well. According to medical research, barbiturates during the 1920s to the mid-1950s were commonly used as sedatives and hypnotics. Winnie in the letter said Anne's taunts possessed her. Her mind went wild, and so she grabbed the gun and knife. On that late October Friday night, she headed to Anne and Sammy's. But her nerves got to the better of her, and she retreated falling asleep for a few hours on their couch. When she woke, she remembered why she was there, and according to the letter, she shot Anne in bed. She wrote that she never had intentions of hurting Sammy, but Sammy and her started to fight. Sammy was stabbed in the shoulder when he shot in the hand and they fell to the ground as they fought. They both reached for the gun, but Winnie got to it first. Winnie in the letter says, quote, I finally got the gun and shot her, and in my wild state, I really do not remember where in the head. In the letter, she said she alone dragged Anne's body into the trunk and then dismembered Sammy's body so that it would fit into the other trunk. In the letter, she alone committed the murders and transportation of the bodies to LA. However, Jenna has a theory about this confession letter. So she wrote that letter to, to, to get Jack to have her exonerated. It wasn't the truth. It wasn't what happened. It, it belies everything else that she told everybody else that happened in the entire case. But she wrote that letter in order to try to get herself exonerated. On April 23rd, 1933, Winnie was handed her new sentence. And at the last minute, she was declared insane and sent to the insane asylum instead of being executed. She was transported back to Phoenix to spend the rest of her life in the state hospital. You'd think this is where Winnie's story would end. She'd spend the rest of her life in that hospital, but no. Winnie Bujad would end up escaping six times over the, the years that she was in the state hospital, and she would be gone for various amounts of time. Her escapes from the hospital were also largely covered by the media, and no one knew exactly how she escaped so many times. That is, until Winnie opened up to Jana about the truth decades later. Someone in the hospital, a nurse, had given her a key to the front door of the state hospital and that she had that key hidden in a very secure place and she would use that key whenever she wanted to leave. In 1962, she escaped and was gone for seven years until 1969, where she was found in California working for a wealthy family as a nanny and housekeeper under the name Marion Lane. Her nephew had borrowed her car um, and he had parked it somewhere where there was a crime. And in checking all the cars in the neighborhood, they came upon this car that was, that was registered to a woman named Marion Lane. And that name 
stuck out to one of the detectives. He recognized the name because it had been used at some point during Winnie's trial. But it had been forgotten all these years, right? And they went looking and they found her and they brought her back to Arizona. Winnie was extradited back to Phoenix, but before this happened, she gave her first ever TV interview to Phoenix journalist Joe Patrick from KTAR in 1969. It took place at the Contra Costa County Jail in California. She gave a completely different story from the confession letter or the theory police had back in the day. A theory closer to what Jana believes. So let's go back to that night before the murder because it's important to know Winnie was introducing Jack Holleran to another woman. When Ann and Sammy found out, they weren't happy. Well, they were all really angry at her because they saw Lucille as chiming in on their good deal. And their good deal was that Holleran would come by, bring liquor, bring food. He brought a Philco radio over. And he and his friends would come over to their house and they would party together. Ann and Sammy planned on telling Jack a rumor about Lucille, which angered Winnie. So according to Jana, Whitney threatened to tell everyone that Ann and Sammy were lesbians. So they were now going after, totally after their entire livelihoods. Her job, their reputations, um, their, their relationship with Jack Holleran, um, who was like their sugar daddy to all of them. All of this stuff was now in this turmoil as they just kept throwing these complaints against each other back and forth. In this version of the story, they were all at Ann and Sammy's place, when the fight began between the three women. Sammy left the room and came back with a gun. And pointed the gun at her and shot at her and hit her in the hand. Ruth picked up a knife that was laying on the table, which was like a butter knife, and she and Sammy started struggling over the gun. And she stabbed at Sammy with the knife while Sammy's trying to shoot her. This is how the very own Winnie Ruth Judd described the scene in her interview from 1969. Anne came from behind. She got the ironing board from behind the um, water heater, and she came up behind me and hit me, which caused us both to fall in the doorway. Now Anne and Winnie are on the floor wrestling for the gun. The gun goes off, shooting Anne to stop her from hitting Winnie with an ironing board. And then at some point, Sammy is also shot during the fight. They, she wasn't shot in bed like they say. It was in the doorway in the kitchen. It wasn't any, in the bedroom at all. In the interview, she makes the case of self-defense. Winnie said Anne knocked her unconscious, and when she came to, she found a very different scene. Anne was also unconscious, and she said, I was laying between two dead bodies, and she got up and she ran. And that was how she said that that scene had happened. How the body was dismembered also is a completely different story. Instead of her alone cutting up the body, in the 1969 interview, she said she had help. Here's what Jana thought about that. So whoever cut up that body knew the anatomy of a human being and knew how to dis- dismember an entire human being. That was not Winnie with Judd. In this version, Jack Holleran promised to help Winnie get to L.A., telling her, I'm going to get you to L.A. I'm going to get you some money to take the train to L.A. We're, we're going to have a guy there take the trunk. He'll throw it into the ocean. No one will ever know what happened. And we're going to cover this whole thing up. That's what she says happened. But Jack never came, and she ran around town borrowing money because she didn't have enough left after paying all her bills. Jack's association with these women was scandalous for the time because he was a known influential member of the community. His name was often in the papers even before the murder. 
So he worked for the O'Malley's and he had this lumberyard that he ran in, under his own name. He was a member of the Phoenix Country Club. He was a leader in the community chest, which was the, the organization that raised money for charity. Um, he went to St. Mary's uh, church. Um, he was a big shot there. Um, he was a, he was a very prominent businessman and, uh, and apparently a very handsome, very charming, very lovable Irishman. He was subpoenaed to testify during the trial, but he was never called by the prosecutors or the defense. However, some suspected Jack to be involved, and in 1933, he was almost tried as an accessory to the crime, but it went nowhere. Now back to 1969, after being discovered in California and taken back to Phoenix, Winnie was taken to the Arizona State Prison, and a new legal fight began. She fought to have her sentence commuted to time served. Eventually, she was pardoned by Governor Jack Williams in 1971 and released from prison. Um, and so she went back to California and she lived there for many years. That's where I found her. That's where I interviewed her when I, when I wrote my book. Um, and I spent time with her over there at her place. As an elderly woman, Jana said Winnie was a sociable person. And after spending so much time with her, they became friends. Everybody who, who met her really liked her. I mean, I, I knew her as a very jovial, very happy, very um, outgoing, um, in, enduring woman. Um, and uh, she would come to my Christmas parties every year and be the hit of the party. Nobody knew who she was. Winnie moved back to Phoenix in the 1990s and lived out her final years in Arizona. She died in her sleep at the age of 93 in 1998. The murder happened in 1931. And here we are, still talking through the details of what happened that night 88 years ago. So I asked Jana, why is everyone still so interested in this story? People find it fascinating because we want justice. We want, we want crimes to be solved, but we don't want scapegoats. We want real justice. And there was no real justice in Winnie Ruth Judd. Winnie's story still captures the interest of people in Arizona, and to this day, we're not sure which version of the story is accurate. Was it this lesbian affair gone wrong, like the state argued? Did Winnie kill Anne in her sleep and then transport the bodies without help, like she said in the 1930s? Or was it this self-defense aided by Jack Holleran, like she said in the 60s? We still don't know, but the fascination with the case remains. Marshall even takes people on a bus tour every October to all the hot spots during this chapter of Arizona history. This even includes the house where the murder happened that still stands in Phoenix. I asked Marshall why her story still permeates into pop culture. That's part of still the mystery of trying to figure out what really did happen. And we may never know what really did happen. Hey, it's me, Kayla again. I had no idea Phoenix was home to such a grisly story from the 1930s. Maritza, what else did you learn about Winnie Ruth Judd while researching this? It's so interesting because she's associated with some pretty influential people in Arizona politics, like Governor Rose Mofford, who, while working at the state hospital, became friends with Winnie. Also, her legal counsel during her insanity plea was Ernest McFarland, who later became U.S. Senator, Arizona Governor, and Chief Justice of Arizona Supreme Court. That is fascinating and makes me just want to learn even more about this. 
If you want to see photos of Winnie or of this time, uh, that would be a good reason to subscribe to our new newsletter. You can find out more and subscribe at valley101newsletter.azcentral.com. We send you information and behind the scenes stuff from each episode every week. Well, that's it for today. As always, if you have questions about Metro Phoenix, you can submit them to us at valley101.azcentral.com. And if you're a new listener, remember you can go back and listen to old episodes. We have a lot of episodes about history, so if you liked this one, just scroll and really click anything. Let us know what you think about our show by leaving us a rating or review on your podcast app. As always, thank you for listening to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. See you next week.